0: You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Lucas, and um, we've been going through uh, the book of Esther, as you guys know. Um, and if you guys aren't caught up, um, I believe everything's on uh, the podcast. You can go back and, and listen to those. Um and uh, not going to try to re-preach all of that. But, um, but yeah, today we are in Esther 4. And, uh, and as Ovi has mentioned, um, there's, there's a lot of things to keep in mind as we go through uh, the book of Esther. Um, like one of the most glaring uh, things with the book is that it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. Um, and, uh, and again, that's, that's kind of been mentioned um, but, uh, but this really kind of comes to a head uh, in chapter four. Um, and we'll we'll look at this. Uh, and there's, there's kind of this phenomenon within the book of Esther uh, where it feels like the author is like, <laughs> it's not that they've just, uh, God was an afterthought or they didn't want to mention God or it just didn't come up. Uh, but we'll actually see this in today's uh, chapter where it's, it's almost as if like the author just, there's a line of like talking about the things of God and then talking about God. And it's like the author just sprints up to the line and then just stops right on purpose. And it's it's almost as if the author is like letting you know, hey, of course we recognize that God's at play, but we're just not talking about it right now, right? Um, and, uh, and we'll see how that's actually important. Uh, this is actually kind of literarily, uh, the uh, the way that the author is highlighting certain things uh, is intentionally Alluding to God, but not talking about him. Um, so uh, we'll talk about that. Like I said, it really kind of comes to a head in Esther 4. Also, Esther 4 is, uh, is kind of the, it's the fulcrum of the story. It's like all of Esther kind of hinges on this, this fulcrum of Esther 4, uh, and everything starts to tip after this point. Uh, we'll look at that. There's, there's a lot of poetry in here. Um, and like I was telling Ovi, uh, as I was going through this and, and kind of preparing this uh, this sermon— uh, there's easily uh, just like kind of at first when I first started digging into it. Uh, there's, I mean, I could preach this chapter in three different ways of uh, like three different sermons. Um, Ovi said, "So you're going to do all three today? Like we just hunker down for three hours and go through?" Like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that to you guys. But, um, but as always, just recognize uh, there's there's a lot of poetry here that we're not going to be able to unpack. Um, there's. Uh, the closest thing to like a theological uh, punchline uh, is in here, uh, in this chapter, um, even though you, the name of God isn't mentioned. So like, can you actually call it a theological punchline? Yes and no. We'll talk about that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's just, there's just a lot to unpack, uh, but unfortunately we're just not going to be able to get through it all. So before I get much more into it, uh, what I'd like to do is just read through the chapter um, and it uh, should be on the screen for you guys. And again, it's Esther 4. Um, and then uh, after we read, I'll give you my three points, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll start unpacking um, this uh, this chapter. So Esther four, it reads: When Mordecai learned of everything that had been done, uh, he tore his clothes and put off, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. So. Uh, let me just back up. If you guys weren't here last week or if you just don't know kind of the story of Esther, uh, what happened previously is that um, a guy by the name of Haman, uh, he was kind of promoted to be ruler over, uh, over Persia or more specifically Susa, which would have been the capital city of Persia. Um, so uh, he was having people bow down to him as they walked past him or as he walked past them, so on and so forth. However, there was one guy that wouldn't bow down. And his name uh, was Mordecai. Uh, and all Esther, the book of Esther, says is that he didn't bow down because he was a Jew, right? And that's it, right? Now, why would Jews not bow down to a man? It's because they viewed God as king. But again, the author, it's like they assume that you know that because they, they refuse, they just won't mention the name of God. And again, that's important, it's, it's deliberate. So, uh, Haman being furious with Mordecai uh, basically bribes the king to make any decree he wants uh, and the king's like, yeah, sure, it's a ton of money, why not? And so Haman's, uh, basically his decree uh, that he sent out in, on behalf of the king was uh, is that on a certain day, uh, just one day, uh, all the people of the Persian empire, they were just going to annihilate and kill all the Jewish people. So uh, that's, that's where we left off. So that's, uh, that's where Esther 3 left off. Uh, is that the decree went out. All the Jews uh, heard about this and the extinction of the uh, of the Jewish people or God's people uh, have just been decreed throughout uh, most of the known world at the time. So uh, back to Esther 4, uh, verse two. And he came as far as the king's gate for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and mourning rites. And many had sackcloth and ashes spread out as a bed. Then Esther's attendants and her eunuchs came and informed her. And the queen was seized by great fear. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he would remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathash, Uh, from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai uh, to learn what this morning was and why it was happening. So Hathash went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, uh, and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's to the king's treasury for the elimination of the Jews. He also gave a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their annihilation so that he might show Esther and inform her uh, and to order her to go into the king, to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. So Hathash came back and reported Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner courtyard, who is not summoned, uh, he has only one law, that he be put to death unless a king holds out uh, to him the golden scepter that he may live. And I have not been summoned to the king for these 30 days. And they reported Esther words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, liberation and rescue will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are found in Susa fast for me, do not drink or uh, do not eat or drink for these three days, night or day. I and my attendants will also fast in the same way. Then I will go into the king, which is not in accordance with the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So there's three points that we are gonna be looking at and we'll talk about how these three points kind of come out of the text uh, and again, this is important. How we get these points uh, is looking at this in context of the author refuses to mention the name of God. So the three points that come out of this text is that God's people must, and there's three different things. God's people must communicate truthfully with each other. The second point is God's people must drive each other toward good deeds. And the last point is that God's people must plead with each other for help. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, I, uh, I thank you for today and I thank you for um, just another opportunity for us to dig into your word. Um, and, uh, and I ask that you just, uh, you be with your people uh, today and, uh, and reveal yourself to them in, um, in kind of new ways and, uh, and in any way that the, that the spirit desires. I ask that, uh, that you just kind of remove uh, me from the equation uh, in, uh, in any way that you can. And uh, and again, that you just you address your church uh, that you're building. Uh, we love you, and uh, we thank you again for everything that you've given to us. Um, as always, uh, orient our hearts and our minds toward Christ, um, because He is our our ultimate truth and uh, and our salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen. So again, uh, these uh, the three points uh, that we have today is that God's people must communicate truthfully with each other. Uh, the second one is that God's people must drive each other toward good deeds. And the last point is that God's people uh, must plead with each other for help. Now, what's, what's important about these points or the reason why we came to these points is again, this phenomenon within Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned. And like I said, we've, we've mentioned this before and I, I do and I don't want to beat this horse to death. So we're uh, we're just going to kind of uh, highlight a few things for you. So, um, like I said, it's it's very obvious that the author was alluding to God or talks about God without actually mentioning his name, and it really does beg the question: Why would this be the case? Why would the author intentionally like do this on purpose, not mention the name of God? Especially like being a good Jew, like that just seems like a terrible idea, right? and uh, what seems uh, quite obvious about this is that uh, the author doesn't want to preclude God, but assumes that the readers already read it as if God is sovereign. Um, and if that were the case, then what is the author trying to communicate or what is the author trying to highlight if not mentioning God? And this is exactly what the author is trying to highlight by doing this. It's trying to highlight the ethic or the actions of just normal people Put in extraordinary situations. And so we, we all rec- kind of recognize that there is a morality in the Bible, right? A morality is, is kind of like the standard that God holds all men to, right? But an ethic is how we actually live out that morality because we're kind of in, we're broken people in a broken world. So how do we actually execute this morality? And that's, that's what the, uh, the author of Esther is really highlighting is what's the ethic of Esther and Mordecai? How do they conduct themselves? What do they actually do in light of these situations? And both both Esther and Mordecai, they are, as Ovi has pointed out in in previous sermons, they're just kind of normal people that are making mistakes uh, and, and sinning just like we would if we were in similar situations. And this is the beauty of Esther is that it really kind of opens up like what normal people do in situations like this but it really highlights that this is where they went right. Even amongst the sin and the mistakes that they did make, this is what they did right. And this is the three points that, that really kind of come out of this passage. Is that, is that Mordecai, he speaks just raw truth to Esther. And this is this, is this idea of that God people must communicate truthfully to each other. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. Uh, But also Mordecai, in speaking truth to her, he also drives her or kind of antagonizes her or prods her into doing a good work that she doesn't want to do. And then lastly, uh, Esther then pleads for other people to help her in her task and in in the good deed that's kind of laid before her. And so, watching this ethic and watching these normal people uh, kind of play out or execute God's will uh, in their life, even though God hasn't mentioned, uh, this is what's being highlighted or kind of drawn out of this book. And again, we're not we're not being distracted, and the, and the writer of author or the author of Esther is doing this on purpose, is because we're not we actually don't even have the luxury of being distracted by the theology of the book, because God's name is not being mentioned. It's like, we can't get lost in the weeds of like, what is God doing here? Because all we have is Esther and Mordecai. Now, what's interesting about Esther, uh, we kind of lose this, uh, especially in our um, kind of more modern Bibles, Uh, book order. If you guys didn't know book order in the Bible, that's not inspired, okay? Um, I don't know if you guys knew that, but like different canons or different Bibles, like the Hebrew Bible kind of like rearranges, uh, especially the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew canon. Um, even some of the earlier Greek manuscripts or early Greek uh, kind of canons, uh, they kind of rearrange the New Testament in different ways, uh, so on and so forth. So the way the books are actually ordered, that's not necessarily inspired. And so the way that Esther kind of plays out as you read the Bible, uh, again, that's not necessarily inspired, Uh, but it does make sense that we put it after like Ezra and Nehemiah because Nehemiah came from the Persian court. Esther was also in the Persian court just logically flows. Um, however, in the, uh, some of the earlier Hebrew canons, um, they would stick Esther in something called a megalote. And this was, uh, it's also known as the five scrolls. Uh, these five scrolls were pretty unique. Uh, they're often associated with festivals in the, in the Jewish calendar. But it was a song of songs. Uh, it was uh, Ruth. Uh, it was Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and then it would end with Esther. These were the five books or the five scrolls and they were always lumped together and they were always read together. And they were all associated with certain festivals uh, in, uh, in the Jewish calendar. Now, what's important with that is immediately after the Megalote, the next book in the Hebrew Bible was always Daniel. And this is very interesting because you look at Esther, you read Esther, and then you read Daniel and you, you actually almost read these. It's like the story starts the exact same, right? Right? These poor Jewish kids are orphaned some way or another, right? Daniel was taken from his parents, but Esther's parents were taken from her. They're both in a foreign land as Jewish people. Um, they're both being raised, uh, like I said, away from the temple, away from traditional Jewish practices. Uh, they're both kind of in, uh, adopted into the courts of their Persian or their, uh, their pagan uh, societies. Uh, Daniel eventually was a part of the Persian court, So was Esther. Uh, You see a lot of these similarities, even even how the kings of these, or the Persian kings were depicted. uh, They're easily manipulated by their court, right? Uh, The people are just kind of like tricking these kings into making really stupid decisions. Uh, The kings, they do make really stupid decisions uh, and they're pretty flippant about just taking people's lives, right? You see a lot of these similarities. But in Daniel, it's just, we've, we went through Daniel. You guys, if you remember that, it's just God's sovereignty is just on repeat over and over and over, right? It's like you, you can't read Daniel and not see God sovereign over everything, meticulously sovereign over everything in all of history, not just in Daniel's life. And again, this book contrasted to Daniel and the Hebrew Bible puts those right next to each other. It's almost as if the, the, when, they, when you want they, the, the original canon, when they wanted you to read Esther, they would just assume you're reading Daniel next. God's sovereignty is all over that book. We don't need to address it here. Now, obviously they didn't write all of the Old Testament at the same time, but rearranging these in a specific order, it does kind of highlight a certain way of reading Esther, right? And it really kind of begs this question, if you have Daniel, which is a lot of the same stories and a lot of the same ethic and a lot of the same everything else, why do we need Esther? We have a lot of the same stuff in Daniel. And again, what we find in Esther that's unique to Esther that we don't get in Daniel, and which is also true of most of the megalote, is that what's being on display, what's being highlighted is less theology and more how do we now live and Again, you you think about you think about those books. You think about Esther. You think about um, Lamentations or Ecclesiastes or Song of Songs. Uh, a lot of the common thread in all of these books, um, to a certain extent, uh, is that um, especially Ruth, Song of Songs, and Esther, um, is that uh, women are kind of like the main character in these books, right? Also, uh, a big uh, a big common theme in these five books uh, is that. Uh, there's kind of, generally, it's, it's God kind of moving in the background while people interact with their surroundings. And this is where we find ourselves in Esther. And so I really want to highlight what the author of Esther is pulling out for us. We don't want to read into the book of Esther all this God's sovereignty stuff, because that's not what the author wants us to read. We have Daniel for that. What Esther is drawing out is the ethic of Esther and Mordecai. So, uh, a couple of great examples of this, uh, of, uh, of the author really just doing everything they can to talk about God, but not uh, actually bring it up, uh, is uh, in verse seven. Uh, Mordecai uh, told him, uh, the, uh, the eunuch, everything that had happened to him, uh, the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to the king's treasury uh, for the elimination of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text. Um, I'm sorry, um, yeah, no, I'm I'm sorry. Verse thirteen is the uh, is the text that I wanted to read. Uh, so verse thirteen. Then Mordecai told them uh, to uh, to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, liberation and rescue will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this? So. This again is just so rich with theology, but like then just the name of God is just not quite mentioned, right? And, uh, and here it, we, we see all this within Mordecai's mind, we see this idea that, listen, God's gonna save us regardless of you. Uh, and even this idea, or this uh, it's, it's called this uh, locative nature where there's a location in which liberation is going to come from, right? That location could be the royal palace, but if not, it's going to come from a different location. Now, where is that location? Who knows? God knows, right? But again, the author just can't quite say that. Uh, and then also uh, Mordecai in his statement here, it's just assumed that there is, um, there's actually intentionality behind uh, Esther attaining to royalty. This wasn't an accident. It was ordained, and again, by whom, well, it would be assumed that it's God. You see how the author is just like, it's running up to the line, just not quite getting there. Or uh, the, second, um, the second way is uh, in verse 16, go and gather all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Uh, Esther goes on to say, uh, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I will gather, or I and my attendants will also fast in the same way. And then I will go to the king which is not in accordance to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Every single time in the Old Testament that someone fasts, the word God is always, it always immediately follows or precedes the fast. Every single time in the, in the Old Testament, every time someone fasts, they're doing it to persuade God to do something. They're doing it to pray to God, right? Fasting and prayer is always associated with each other. Uh, they're always doing this. Uh, but there's only one book where fasting occurs, uh, and God is not in purview at all, and it's here in the book of Esther. So you see how this—it really stands out, and the author's really trying to highlight this, really trying to uh, to bring this to the forefront. And so, if we're if we're looking at Esther as if it were a painting, what's on the foreground, what's kind of screaming at us, is uh, is that it's Esther and Mordecai. And So with that. Uh, what we can glean, like I said, our first point, we'll kind of dig into this, is that God's people must communicate truthfully with each other, because that's exactly what Mordecai did. So our first point uh, is, again, God's people must communicate truthfully with each other. Verse seven, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasury for the elimination of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their annihilation so that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go to the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. So what what Mordecai is doing is, uh, and this is very interesting, what he's giving to the eunuch and what's being communicated to Esther, uh, even though they can't communicate uh, face-to-face, which is why this poor, this poor eunuch is uh, just kind of running across all of Susa. Um, What's being communicated to her is uh, Mordecai said everything that happened to him, not the Jews, to Mordecai. And what happened to Mordecai? Why is that pertinent to this story? Well, what happened to Mordecai is that he refused to bow to Haman. That's what happened. You see how we would look at this and that's just, it's not really, it's just kind of like perfunctory. It's just, it's side conversation. It's not really pertinent. Like, why not just give Esther the edict? Like, hey, all the Jews are going to die, right? That seems like the most important part of the story. But uh, Mordecai doesn't communicate just that. He communicates what happened to him, his relationship to Haman, why he's the reason all of this is happening, right? Uh, And Mordecai is also communicating that this is all motivated by a bribe. The king doesn't necessarily want this. It's just Haman. And then he also gives the edict, which is the reason for the annihilation. So all of these things is that Mordecai is trying to communicate as much truth uh, with, uh, with Esther as possible. And that we, can, we can glean a lot from this because a lot of times uh, Mordecai doesn't necessarily do anything wrong by not bowing to Haman, but it does implicate him as the reason this is all happening, doesn't it? Like he, he really is, even though he didn't do anything wrong, he really is the reason this is all going down, right? And perhaps he could have been a little bit more generous to Haman as he communicated like, no, I'm just not bowing to you. Um, he could have appealed to maybe Haman's sensibilities, but he just chose not to do that. All of that is, uh, is communicated to Esther. It really is Mordecai's fault, but he's also communicating that, like, it's not the king's fault. The king doesn't necessarily want this. Uh, it's just he was bribed into doing it. It's all Haman. And again, then he gives the, uh, the also the edict that explains what's going to happen. So this this idea of just communicating truthfully, I think we can learn a lot from this, especially as a church or as God's people. We can learn a lot in just when we communicate with each other, and this is very much a New Testament idea, is that we speak truth to one another. Even when it might not paint us in the best light, right? Uh, just like Mordecai, like this is all happening because of him. Again, he didn't do anything wrong, but he is the reason, right? Like when we communicate with each other, we don't have to spin our stories. We, we don't have to kind of uh, make ourselves the heroes, as we, as we kind of communicate with each other, we, we really do need to do everything we can to communicate as truthfully as possible. And often that includes us uh, kind of communicating or confessing where we've, where we've gone wrong in our, uh, in our situations. A lot of times communicating truthfully with, e- with each other, uh, it, uh, it, it does require a lot of courage, right? Uh, it also requires um, uh, a lot of risk, and um, we've we often, I find in church, um, even just in our conversations about, uh, I don't know, political conversations um, or economic situations or just, uh, just our, our opinions about the news cycles. Uh, a lot of times, so often we just, we, we start spinning these stories to kind of communicate our, our agenda or our perspective on things. But what if we got away with that or from that? What if we stepped away from all of this conversation? We just started speaking truthfully with one another. We stopped swaying our conversations to actually paint our perspective or or our desire. We just communicated truthfully to one another. And this kind of coincides with a second point is that God's people must drive each other toward good deeds. And this driving each other toward good deeds often requires this kind of brutal truthfulness Uh, That's very uncomfortable. So after uh, Mordecai uh, basically communicates to Esther, like, this is what's going on. This is the full story. This is everything. And it's my fault. Now he commands Esther to go to the king. Now, this is another one of those sermon ideas. You could just look at the poetry of this. Uh, what's fascinating about Esther 4, like I said, it's kind of the fulcrum of the story, uh, is you actually, up until this point, Esther has just kind of been this passive participant in the story. Mordecai is the one that's kind of moving the story along. He's the one that adopts Esther. He's the one in the court. He's the one that saves the king. He's the one that makes Haman hate the Jews. He's the one, you see how it's, it's all about Mordecai up until this point, isn't it? And then here, even in Esther 4, he's commanding Esther, do this. This is a command, right? I'm ordering you to go to the king right? Mordecai's calling the shots. But then you'll see at the end, it's actually Esther that orders Mordecai to gather the Jews and fast. And then what does Mordecai do? He did everything Esther commanded. You see this really interesting transition to where now Mordecai isn't calling the shots anymore, but Esther is. And Ovi talked about this where it's uh, Esther's. she's not really the heroine, but she kind of moves into it. This is when she moves into it. We're actually seeing the transition now where she's actually the one that's actually calling the shots. She's the one that's actually doing or, or kind of asking Mordecai to do the things on her behalf. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of poetry here, even like how they're commanding and ordering uh, the eunuch to walk around, right? Sometimes they order him, sometimes they command him, sometimes they, they demand it, sometimes they just communicate, right? Right? Uh, but it's, it's kind of like this building up to this point where Mordecai commands Esther, but then Esther then commands Mordecai. The relationship changes. So, but again, that's a different sermon. So, but what's interesting is again, the second point is that God's people must drive each other toward goodness is that Mordecai He commands Esther to go to the king. Uh, Esther replies back where he says, that's the worst idea you've had, Right? Uh, this, this is how people die, right? And she even says it kind of like tongue in cheek where she's like, everyone knows this, Mordecai, which is hilarious because he actually goes to, this is his job to be in the inner court. Like he knows this better than anybody, right? He's probably actually even seen people killed, right? And so she's communicating this, like everyone knows this. And then Mordecai goes on to say, verse 13, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and your king's, in, in the king's palace can escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, liberation and rescue will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such time as this. Here, we actually, uh, we see Mordecai really kind of like, he's, he's pressing in on Esther now. And up until this, this point in the story, uh, Esther and Mordecai have had this very fatherly daughter uh, relationship, right? Mordecai raises Esther. Uh, he checks in on her. He goes to the harem and he talks to the eunuchs. Hey, how's she doing? Uh, he's, he's doing everything that he can to kind of help her. He instructs her, hey, play your cards close to your chest. Don't tell people that you're a Jew, right? It might get you in trouble. He's, he's coaching her and he's trying to make sure that she's safe all up until this point. But here we see Mordecai really laid down the hammer, doesn't he? Um, it might not be obvious, but there's actually a threat here. Mordecai actually threatens Esther and says, if you don't do this, you will die. So he says, uh, don't imagine that you're safe just because you're in the king's palace, which of course she actually is. So what is, what is the threat? It's again, God. God is the one that's actually, uh, that she's, she's responsible to. And, uh, and so then he goes on to say, uh, but liberation, we're all, we're going to be saved. The, the Jewish people are going to be saved by God regardless. You may as well just join in and be a part of it. And if you don't, God's going to treat you just like everyone else that is persecuting the Jews. And We know how that goes for them. You see how Mordecai is, is actually laying out this threat, not that he can carry out, but that will come on Esther if she doesn't do her part. And so he really is, he's, he's kind of driving her into this place where it's just like, like it or not, the Jews will be saved. Like it or not, you are a part of this. Like it or not, you're in, you're a part of the royalty and you can play a part in saving all the Jews. Now the question is, what are you going to do with it? And again, this whole book is about the ethic of Esther and Mordecai. How are they actually living this out? You have a choice. Are you going to participate or not? And so Mordecai's relationship with Esther at this point, and we'll see this in the rest of the book, uh, their relationship is different forever. Uh, and if you, I'm sure you guys have all experienced this, as you grow up, uh, your relationship with your parents, at some point, it just transitions from being a child to now you interact with your parents as, as like man to man, right? Or man to woman. And you're always their kid, right? That's always at play. But there's always this transition to where like, no, I'm going to treat you like a brother. I'm going to treat you like a man. I'm going to talk to you like a man now. And we actually see this happen here. Mordecai is not playing. He's not treating Esther like a daughter anymore. He's treating her like another Jew. He's treating her like a sister of God's people. And again, this, this creates a lot of risk. Mordecai knows this, his relationship with Esther is never going to be the same after this, but he's also asking her to take a lot of risk because she might lose her life as a result. And a lot of times, uh, this, this is exactly what God is calling us to do with each other, is that God's people must drive each other to good, toward good deeds. This gets really uncomfortable sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes in the church, we do have to call each other out. We do have to make this really uncomfortable. And sometimes our relationships with each other will just never be the same. And again, we have to just lean into this. This is exactly what we're being invited into. Uh, Hebrews 10 talks about this. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together as is a habit of some people, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Uh, This word encouraging uh, in this uh, book in Hebrews, uh, it's actually, uh, it's pretty unique. In some places, that word is also translated as irritating or angrily disputing something. <laughs> and That's exactly what Hebrews is talking about. Encourage one another. That sounds so nice, right? <laughs> but the book of Hebrews is really talking about like just prod each other, right? It's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's going to, it's going to feel like an anger dispute. It's going to feel like agitating someone. It's gonna feel like irritating someone. It's going to be uncomfortable. And again, your relationships may never be the same afterward. But this is what we're called to do as God's people is we encourage each other into good works. Just like Mordecai is driving Esther into good work. She doesn't want to do it. And he knows that, but he's not gonna let her off the hook, is he? And he's sacrificing his relationship with Esther forever in order to actually execute this. And we can learn a lot from Mordecai is as we see each other doing something that, that doesn't honor God, as we see each other kind of uh, lacks in our salvation, or we, we do see each other interacting with each other in a way that, that's, uh, that's harmful to the body. And if we took that opportunity to drive each other, to encourage each other, to irritate or agitate each other toward good deeds, to good works, to unity in the spirit, I think the church would look a lot different. So this is exactly what Mordecai is, is communicating to Esther. And again, he's, uh, he's, he's now moving into a different relationship uh, with Esther. And again, we'll see this moving on uh, throughout the rest of the book. Esther and Mordecai's relationship is never the same. And the last point is that God's people must plead with each other for help. So Esther's response to this prodding, to this agitating as she responds and says, go, imperative, this is a command. Go, gather all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants also will fast in the same way. And then I will go into the king, which is not in accordance with the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did as Esther had commanded him to do. And again, this is uh, it's kind of like, again, the third sermon that I could preach, but we're not going to. Is <laughs> this idea that, that what Mordecai has just done is he's sacrificed his relationship with Esther in order to actually honor God. And again, we, we, could, we could go on and on about that. But the end result of that sacrifice of risking his relationship is that Esther has now come into her own and she is now doing the thing that God has Uh, kind of implicitly been planning uh, in the background of this story. Again, the author doesn't allow us to get lost in the weeds with that. Is God right for making these decisions? Is God doing the best thing possible? Is God really good if he's allowing these awful situations to happen? The author doesn't let you go there. Like it's just not an option. And the beauty of this is that because we can't get lost in those weeds, because we can't get into theological discussions, all we're left with is that Esther is now becoming the heroine and she's saving the Jewish people. And we know from Mordecai's rebuke that liberation was coming anyways, right? But now Esther gets to participate in this. And again, we see this idea over and over in the Old Testament where it's, again, this is probably a fourth sermon. <laughs> it just came to me. But it's this idea that like when God's people reject uh, what the world has to offer and instead they associate themselves with God's people, blessing always comes from it. Like we see this with, uh, with Moses. He was raised by the Egyptians, right? But he rejected it and associated himself with his kin or his brethren, Joseph, he also was he, was, he had everything in Egypt, but he rejected his Egyptian culture and he associated himself with the brothers that wanted to kill him, right? And the Jewish people were blessed for it. Uh, we see Esther, we see even Nehemiah. He had all this, uh, all the wealth of Persia available to him. Not that he was a ruler, but he was a cupbearer and he had everything that he needed, but instead he rejected it and associated himself with the Jewish people. Over and over and over, we see God's blessing come when people reject what the world has to offer and they associate themselves with God's people or as God's people. And this is exactly what we see here with Esther is what does Esther do? She stops being just this passive player in this story. She stops being the queen and she starts being a Jew. And this, again, is just it's, it's this radical shift in Esther's story. Because not only is she, Mordecai previously told her, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. And now he's telling her, pull out the stops, right? You're a Jew now, whether you like it or not. And so Esther leans into it. She says, fine, gather all the Jews, have them fast for me, right? And this is a rather aggressive fast, not eating or drinking. Most fasts just include not eating. But she's saying not eating or drinking and it's day and night. Sometimes you do see a fast of food and water uh, but just during the daytime. So what she's, this is a big ask. And she's asking for the fast to go out for her. And again, it's implied, uh, why else would they be fasting? Well, everywhere else in the New Testament, uh, the reason why you fast is kind of petitioning God. So what Esther's doing is she's, she's actually associating herself with the, uh, with the persecuted people of God. And again, we can learn a lot from Esther in this, in that God's people must plead with each other for help. When we do kind of our, when we're, when we're kind of, when we communicate truthfully with each other, when we're kind of being prodded or driven toward good deeds, we can't do that in isolation. And I think we always need to remember this, is that uh, doing good deeds or doing church, as this isolated Christian, it just, there's, there's just no, there's no category for something like this. Not in the New Testament. And we can see here, it's not even in the Old Testament, is it? We don't see Esther acting alone. We don't see Esther in isolation. We don't see Esther just being like, oh, I'm just gonna participate in the covenant on my own. And I feel like I hear Christians say this all the time where it's just like, oh, I just worship God on my own, right? Or the church isn't a building, I am the church, so I'm just going to you know, worship God the way that I want to. There's just no category for that. And again, we have a lot to learn from Esther is that as she's stepping into her own, what does she immediately do? She leans on the other Jewish people. If I'm you, then you're me. We're all doing this. We're all fasting. And in the most aggressive way, we all have everything to lose. So let's just lose it all together, Right? And again, there's, there's so much to glean from this. There's so much to learn from Esther's ethic and her example is that so often when we see each other struggling, right? Uh, we are, maybe we're all struggling and we just like to keep it to ourselves, right? I don't wanna impose. I don't wanna bring other people down. I don't want to X, Y, or Z. It's just, is not what we're called into as God's people, is it? What we're called into is to, is to plead with each other for help. It's to pray with each other, mourn with each other, but also celebrate with each other, right? We're all in this together. And if we all have everything to, do, to lose, which is exactly what Christ is, asking, is inviting us into, right? Crucify yourself, crucify your flesh, die to your sins, die to everything that you are so that you can be recreated into something else. We all have everything to lose. We might as well lose it all together. And here we see Esther kind of modeling this for us. Is again, go and fast. And everyone's going to fast uh, for the three days. And then she's going to go speak to the king. And this very unique language of, if I perish, I perish. uh, This is actually uh, her kind of vaguely quoting um, uh, Israel. Israel said the exact same thing. Uh, when uh, Joseph was commanding uh, that uh, the Jewish boys bring Benjamin uh, and everything else back to him. And Israel basically threw up his hands and said, well, if I lose Benjamin, I lose Benjamin. If, uh, if I lose my boys, if I lose my sons, then I'll just, I'll die in torment. And that was Israel's perspective. There's just, there's nothing else I can do. All I can do is just rely on God. And you see Esther doing the same exact thing. And again, crisis kind of draws us to this place, doesn't it? Crisis drives us to our knees where we just say, we just throw up our hands and say, I, I, I guess God's got this. And if he doesn't, I guess he, that's just what he's going to do, right? And again, this feels fatalistic, but there's a lot of faith in this also. Esther's doing everything she can. And what can never be said of Esther at this point moving forward is that she did nothing. Can never say that about Esther. And I think this is an ethic that we should be able to follow. Sometimes it gets really murky on how do we proceed? How do we deal with this situation? How do we deal with this family member that's just chronically taking advantage of the family? How do we deal with this situation where this coworker is just stealing from the company and I'm the only one that know? How do I deal with this? Just do everything you can to honor God in that situation. And man, don't feel like you're doing that on your own. This is why the body exists we'll pray for you, we'll fast with you, right? How do we actually live out this ethic? How do we actually do this thing? Just do everything you can. And if it works, if you perish, if, it, if you get fired, if something bad happens, you just, you do everything that you know to be true, that you know to be right. And again, you just kind of throw your hands up and just say, God's going to do what he will, but at least it could never be said that I didn't do my part. And so as we, as we kind of like consider this book, as we go throughout this week, I, I really want us to, to really kind of hone in on, on our relationship with each other. I want us to learn a lot from Mordecai and Esther and what's being brought out in chapter four. And again, we'll see all of these points highlighted even more after Esther four, because again, this is the fulcrum. Everything's different after this. But God's people, they must communicate truthfully with each other. And sometimes that's very hard. And again, we're not spinning our stories. We're not trying to make ourselves look better than we are. We're just being truthful with each other. But again, sometimes this truthfulness is hard because God's people must drive each other or prod each other or agitate each other toward good deeds, which often is uh, is asking ourselves to kind of sacrifice our relationships uh, with each other. But again, that's okay because God's people must plead with each other for help. And this is where we help each other live out this ethic that's being laid out for us in Esther 4 is that we're with each other, we communicate with each other, we live with each other and we help each other. So I'd like for us to just pray and ask God to help us execute all these things. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.